Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Live Life Liberated with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. Chris Osmond is in the hot seat again behind the mic with another great guest. Chris, how are you? I'm doing great, Art. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Who did you bring in today? Uh, I am very honored uh, to introduce our guest uh, and someone I consider a friend, Chris Long, the founder and CEO of Palmer Capital, uh, Palmer Square Capital Management. Fantastic. What are you guys going to be talking about today? We are continuing uh, our series on inflation and rising interest rates and potential hedges. Well, last time we talked about real estate, private real estate, and today we're going to be talking about private credit and how it can serve as a potential hedge against rising interest rates and potentially inflation. Yeah, that, that is a hot topic. So I'm excited to hear the, the interview today. Thank you so much for bringing them on the show. Yep. No, absolutely. And with that, we would love to dig in. But before so, before we do that, I would love to introduce our guest, Chris Long. As I mentioned, he's the CEO and, and founder of Palmer Square. I've had the uh, luxury and privilege to, to know and invest with him and his wife, Angie, who uh, founded the business for more than five years now. And I can say I've been nothing, nothing short of pleased with the results and professionalism and market acumen that they consistently deliver. Liver. So without further ado and stealing all their thunder, I'd love to, to bring Chris on and allow him to introduce himself, to provide a little bit of background on him, Palmer Square, so we can all get uh, acclimated. Chris, thank you so much for the opportunity and, and, and kind words. It's been an honor to, to work with you, your clients, and um, and have done so for an extended period of time now. Chris Long, I will say a few things about myself, but it's really about our firm. Um, I've been doing credit and credit-related alternatives my entire career post-undergrad, so that's 25 years now. And this is one of the most interesting environments um, where active management is, is truly critical. Our firm is based in Kansas City with a research office in London. We oversee $23 billion in assets. We have almost 50 team members. And the vantage point I will bring today is this is all we do. We focus on US and Europe, corporate credit and structured credit. So obviously interest rate risk, credit risk, et cetera, are key focus items for our firm. Great, great, Chris. Thank you for that introduction. Yeah, it's been it's been fun to watch the the growth. I remember when we met. I think started investing near around five billion. So it's great to see that growth and well deserved. So, without further ado, let's let's get started on the topic. It's uh, such a timely topic. You know, twenty twenty two has been a rough year for really all capital markets. You know, on the on the heels of a fiscal spending cliff and a surging dollar that's impacted the U.S. trade imbalance, we actually saw the first quarter contract in terms of GDP. You know, I, I think no surprise to anyone, inflation is not transitory. <laughs> it's been extremely persistent and and nagging in sorts. Interest rates have really spiked, and in most cases, they've they more than doubled across the curve, except for really long bonds, which has also uh, set equity markets in in a disarray. And we're now in a bear market, so equity markets have sold off over twenty percent. You know, consumer sentiment, as of uh, recently, is now at an all time low. 
Yeah, that's uh, it's it's amazing. It's, it's just been a uh, a very tough environment, and the hopes of choking inflation, the Fed has really started to reverse course for the first time in uh, you know since the COVID and tighten monetary policy. You know their their balance sheet red, uh, ballooned to nearly nine trillion, and in June that actually started to reduce for the first time, and they've begun right you know raising interest rates. We saw an announcement just uh, just a few minutes ago that they increased. Uh, 75 basis points, um, you know, and are expected to aggressively continue to increase going forward. That 75 basis point increase is actually the largest increase at an FOMC meeting or a federal open market meeting, committee meeting in nearly three decades, going back to 1994. And normally when markets are selling off, we see bonds, you know, traditional fixed income serve as a ballast for asset allocation and portfolio returns. But you know, for the first time ever, we we're seeing bonds correct simultaneously simultaneously with stocks. They're they're down roughly 13% year to date. And so it's been a rough year, rough year to say the least. But uh, the focus of our, t- our conversation today is private credit, and not all fixed income assets are taking it on the chin. Uh, in fact, private credit's been a, a rising star while both inflation and interest rates have been surging. And now yeah, you know, we look at private credit and we believe they should continue to provide tremendous value to investors' portfolio. Now, with all that said, Chris, <laughs> before uncovering all the benefits private private credit and fixed income can deliver through through the market cycles, particularly rising interest rate regimes, I'd love to start with an overview on what is private credit. Absolutely, and great great macro backdrop there, Chris. A lot a lot of lot of data packed in there. Look, I mean, in the historical sense, private credit has traditionally been the concept of middle market direct lending, which is I go out and I directly originate a loan from a small to mid-sized company. Well, as anything in the financial services space goes, often the opportunity um, set expands and many more types of assets get included in a particular category. So in private credit, that's something that's happened as well. And today, I mean, private credit includes real estate credit or real estate debt. Um, CLO debt and equity is a massive part of private credit, infrastructure credit, asset-based lending, transportation credit. The reality is the, the really the lines between public and private credit have started to blur. And you see you know, larger and larger deals getting done in the, in the private credit markets and, and vice versa. So at the end of the day, I think there's ample opportunity for investors, but you have to do the work and ferret through what's there. Yep. No, I, I agree completely. And I think you hit the nail on the head because there are, those lines are starting to blur. And when investors think of bonds, I think in a general sense, they think of your, your traditional US treasury bonds or, or even a corporate bond, say, of, of like Apple. However, there, as you just mentioned, there's so many different flavors of credit. And I know Palmer, one of Palmer Square's expertise is, is CLOs. And so, and, and you just mentioned them. I'm wondering, can you uh, enlighten our audience? What exactly are CLOs and how can they add value or hedge against rising interest rates? Absolutely. If you think about um, a CLO and you just take one 
example, a CLO looks like any company. So anyone that's listening that you know works at a manufacturing company or a technology company or food and drug, you name the industry, CLO in, in its basic form is the same thing. There are assets those, and those assets have to be bought with something. So they're funded with debt and equity, right? Just like if you bought a, a house, a residential house, you can use some debt from a bank. And then you, of course, put your equity in. CLOs are the same exact construct. In the case of the CLO, though, the assets are broadly syndicated bank loans. So think large loans that are uh, secured and they're, um, you, you lend to companies such as Dell Computer or Aramark or AMC Theaters or American Airlines. So those are the assets in a CLO, that, and that's the, the, really the revenue right, of, of your company. You then have the debt. That debt is like any other debt out there. It trades every day. It's very um, uh, transactable. And then you have the owner, the person who's the equity in it. And if you think about to your question, Chris, about what's the, the sort of inflationary, the benefit, well, um, both CLO debt and CLO equity both benefit in an inflationary rising rate environment given they are floating rate. And what that means is the rate that is uh, attached to those securities adjusts every quarter. So if rising, if rising rates are going up, then a quarter from now, you're getting paid more income as a result. Well, as we know, inflation and rising rate environments really come hand in hand. So that floating rate nature is a massive inflationary hedge that you can use to your benefit. Oh, great. Thank you. And you know, it, it's interesting when you, when you think fixed income, you don't think equity, <laughs> right? So it, with a normal traditional equity being a natural inflationary hedge, would CLO equity, that tranche be considered a more of inflationary hedge than the debt tranche? So if you think about um, that company, you know, that I described as a, being a CLO, your, your assets are these loans and they're floating rate. And then the debt that you issue is floating rate. And then you've got the equity. And the equity is really at the end of the day, it's, it's not like a true like stock or, you know, something you'd buy, you know, the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, et cetera. But in fact, what it is, is um, the profit stream that you get because your assets generate your revenue, you pay your debt holders their uh, interest, and what's less left over goes to the equity. Well, what's left over benefits from a rising rate environment. So it is in, indeed an inflationary hedge. Uh, and, the, and how it does is you have more assets that are floating rate than debt that is floating rate. So as rates rise, your assets are generating more income your debt's costing you more, but because there are much more assets than debt, there's a natural benefit to that profit holder, to that equity person in the form of additional compensation for the risk taken. So yes, it's not like a traditional stock in that regard, but it definitely has 
the inflationary benefit or hedge attached to it. Uh, of course, of course, should it be should it be run correctly, used correctly? Yep, absolutely. And, and I think it's important, you know, because as, as you mentioned earlier, there there's so many different flavors of of credit in general, particularly on the private side. But are they all made equal when it pertains to hedging against inflation? When we look at private credit, uh, it, do investors just naturally get this benefit because they're exposed to private credit, or are some types of private instruments more uh, advantageous or beneficial to own to hedge against inflation and rising interest rates? Yeah, incredible question. The way I ended my last answer really tied well into this question in that, you know, should it be done right and run well? And what did, what did I mean by that? Well, at the end of the day, with anything credit related, and certainly, you know, CLOs fit in that category, traditional private credit and everything I mentioned earlier, you have to do the work. So what we call it internally is do the proper underwriting. That's assessing the credit quality, that's diving deep on the risk, um, because that is the fly uh, you know, in the ointment kind of thing, which is if you don't do the work, then all of this is just for naught, right? You're not going to get any of these benefits if all of a sudden all the credit that you're exposed to is defaulting and having trouble. So uh, I think that's a key characteristic, active management, working with people like a Chris Osman who know the space incredibly well. I've been doing it a long, long time and having them advise you, that's critical, especially as you get into markets like this. Well, thank you. And thank, thank you for the plug. Appreciate it, Chris. <laughs> yeah, well <laughs> Uh, you know, it, and you just briefly touched on it uh, on one of the risks, and, and that's underwriting. And we've talked a little bit about the benefits. What are some other risks uh, associated with private credit that investors should be aware of? I think when you look at risk, some people define it different ways. So, you know, the first risk is, in our view, and it's paramount, is default risk, meaning I lend to you. And you don't pay me back in full timely interest and principal. That's the most basic risk. And and everybody, I think, agrees that's of paramount importance when you're investing in credit. The second risk is interest rate risk. If you have products like we've discussed today that have a floating rate nature to them, you know that you have an ability to have your rates adjust as rates rise. Therefore, you don't have as much interest rate risk. So some are worried about that risk, especially now, that's a second risk. A third risk is volatility, which could come from many different perspectives uh, and many different ingredients contribute to volatility. Uh, What is volatility? Just means your price on whatever you own how much does it move around in any given environment? Well, in private credit, you need to be particularly careful in some aspects. For example, in traditional middle market direct lending, there isn't a lot of volatility until there is. Meaning all along the way, as long as you're getting paid interest, it doesn't show much volatility. But if something happens, then it will have a lot of volatility. For some investors, that's a key context of whether or not to invest. 
how do you get, how do you mitigate price fall as your third risk? Again, work with someone who has a strong credit platform, has a disciplined, methodical underwriting process, because you can't just be long private credit and not understand the risks. And those three risks, you can mitigate those. You can never eradicate risk, but you can always mitigate default risk, interest rate risk, and price fall. And Chris, as you're as you're talking, I can't help but you know point out that these risks they, these are the same risks that actually <laughs> exist in the in the public markets. Uh, and I think just reiterates your your point earlier that these lines are being blurred, and that perhaps the the main one of the main nuances or differences between public credit and private credit is that illiquidity. Uh, and that premium that that's associated uh, with that illiquidity in the private markets. W- would you agree with that statement? Anything you'd like to add there? No, no, definitely. I think the um, different different markets also have premiums for for illiquidity out there. Um, you could you could draw that analogy into a ton of different areas. I, I definitely agree with with that statement. Great. Now, I want to I switch gears a little bit. We've, we just cover a little bit about the value of, uh, of private credit, some of the you know, what is private credit. But I really want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit more about the landscape today. And I think in order to talk about today and, and looking forward, it's always important to look backwards and, and understand how we got here. Um, you know, so, so Chris, I'd, I'd love it if you could maybe give us, from your perspective, a, a quick recap on just the, the evolution of the, the markets and how it within, especially credit, over the last, say, you know, maybe post-great financial crisis through COVID and, and perhaps some of the, the you know, monumental changes that have taken place within the credit markets within that time period. Well, you look at the credit markets over an extended period of time, and you've been in a bull market. Um, there's been some periods where that's not the case, but but generally, if you look over multi-decade type um, time frame, it's a bull market. The other part about it is you look over extended period of time, and we have not seen much in the way of inflation. Recent data that we just all uh, got here this past week, you know, shows that we're the worst, some of the worst inflation data in 40 plus years. And that's a long time. So when you recap the history, you got to think about the fact that really there's not a lot of investors out there that have dealt with materially inflationary environments and materially rising rate type scenarios. So that's something that I think the most diligent of investor is paying really strong attention to because whether it's inflation and of course rising rates attached to it, you know, that's going to impact all sectors, all types of borrowers. Just one other comment, you you mentioned sort of the great recession and COVID. And I just want to touch on defaults. The other part of the, you know, really the bull market has been low defaults. We haven't seen default rates really tick up in a material fashion over an extended period of time. If you look at the last big default environment, it wasn't COVID. In fact, COVID had minimal defaults. It just had a lot of credit downgrades. 
the last big default environment was 1999 to 2003. So that's, you know, we're going 20, 23 years, right? So what happened then? Well, that was, of course, the tech telecom blow up. There was a lot of accounting fraud at that point. And you saw a five-year cumulative default rate of around 23%. But barring that, and, and to a lesser extent, 2008, the defaults have been low. So I think we're in this enormously important credit market from a vantage point of not many people have been here. Higher rates, potential for higher defaults, and of course, inflation that is, as you said earlier, not transient. <laughs> yep. And you know, as, as you're talking, I can't help but think of how much value active management in this environment really can play. And to points you made earlier, identifying managers that have experience and a very rigorous diligence process and a focus on quality are really going to add a lot of benefit and protect against those defaults uh, you know if they do start to increase you know looking back at at covid and I, I think one of the differences perhaps between the you know, public and private markets is you know I, I'm gonna I'm gonna look at CLOs for a second Chris and you know, you look at, at COVID and there's never been a default in, in AAA CLOs, right? But the, the market, I think, misunder, perhaps misunderstands the, that, that asset class because they're, they were pricing, what, like a, a 10, 11% default rate in, in those assets. But the private markets weren't experiencing that type of reaction. Do you, do you feel that the, the price, uh, or I should say the CLO market may be just misunderstood by the public investor? I think that's absolutely the case. I do think that the misperception, misunderstanding aspect of things has definitely diminished over the years as education's increased. But yeah, you make a great point. I mean, one of the things, I'll tie it all together, you mentioned active management. Well, the reality is when volatility comes about and risk is mispriced, there are opportunities. And when you see something like AAA CLOs, you know, trading 10, 15 points down, that is the epitome of an amazing opportunity. You have a security that is floating rate. You have a security that has never had a default dating back to 1994, which was the start of the marketplace. And yet you have investors pricing in this probability of default that's really not commensurate at all with the risk. So those are opportunities for where a place like Palmer Square, we, we, we really pride ourselves on taking advantage of those opportunities. And I, I love that example. And I could certainly you know, jump into a bunch of other ones. But yeah, that is one of the quintessential case studies in a lack of understanding of what is true risk at the end of the day. Yep. And, you know, uh, shifting a little bit from, you know, the, the history, the past and looking at today's market. And you know, we, we briefly mentioned the Fed and they are now tightening. How has private credit fared during Fed tightening cycles? There hasn't, you know, the, the only thing is when you think about private credit, if you go to kind of your traditional direct lending, you know, origination from a company and or, you know, working with a financial sponsor to, to generate those, those loan opportunities. 
it's not a huge swath of data. Now, that being said, if you look at um, the default rates in private credit, they've remained really low. And for managers that have that strong underwriting, that strong credit process, you know, you look at the pressure that rising borrowing costs put on companies. Well, those types of managers run all sorts of scenario analyses. When they do a loan to XYZ company, they're assuming that a variety of bad types of environments could occur. And they're making those loans based on feeling very comfortable that they have a cushion, for example, if interest rate borrowing costs rise, et cetera. So I think from a historical traditional private credit perspective, were you know with the right managers, even though there's not a lot of data out there, for the ones that have been doing this a long, long time, you've you've done you've done very well. Now let's switch gears to CLOs. CLOs have been you know around since 1994. There's been a lot of different environments. Obviously, the 2000 tech environment I just mentioned, 0809, COVID, you name it, and we've seen suffer. I think the numbers are you know in over 12,000 ratings given by S and P. You know, there's there's been around 40 total defaults. And those are round numbers, but the point is that's a staggeringly high level of accomplishment and really something we think investors should pay pay good attention to. So overall, I think when you think about Fed tightening cycles and how has has general private credit fared, it's fared well. And you know, as, you're, as you're talking, Chris, and you know, we've, we've talked a lot about defaults and underwriting and one thing in the, in the public markets that when we're looking at, say, bank loans, for an example, you hear a lot about a lot of the loans moving to more covenant light. And yes. do you find that in the private markets that it's the opposite, that perhaps there's, there's more covenant heavy versus the public markets? The... the... The, the reality of, of um, lack of covenants being present has definitely permeated the private market as well as the broadly syndicated market, maybe to a lesser extent, but it's definitely there. And that's you know, really on the back of a you know, massive amount of, of dry powder and demand for loan deals, right? Everyone's really competing to be able to lend to a variety of sectors. And so hence some of the terms in those documents that have traditionally been, been, been very tight have loosened. I don't necessarily think that that is a harbinger of future default increases, but it's something to pay attention to. And it gets back to active management. When you think about covenant light, often just by nature of it, if there being more covenant light deals doesn't necessarily mean defaults because if you're a really good company and you're a great steward of capital and you're a great management team and your industry has tailwinds, it's likely you've already been awarded cov light status and you deserve it and you earn it. The issue becomes when it's the lower quality company at the bottom of the marketplace in whatever sector and all of a sudden they get it. That's really where you see the issues issues surface. And we're starting to see some of that, but again, not in a 
way, shape, or form that would cause us concern from a destabilizing the market perspective. So we talked a lot about the really the the benefits that you know, uh, you know adjustable adjustable rate or floating rate private credit can provide in rising interest rate environments, but we're also hearing a lot of headlines around you know deflation um, and you know stagflation. You know, I don't think it's outside of the the realm to envision a hard landing here, whereby we enter a recession and um, and maybe rates reverse. Do would those how would those same assets that have benefited during a rising interest rate perform in that type of environment? I think the hard landing scenario is one you certainly have to handicap. And you know, we often get asked sort of why. Well, central banks around the world, whether it's the Federal Reserve, it's the European Central Bank, Bank of England, you know, Bank of Japan, they're in an unprecedented situation, whether it's the size of their balance sheet, it's the um, numbers they're seeing, whether growth, inflation, employment, or at the end of the day, it's also where their rates have been from a historical standpoint whatever the case, they can make a mistake. And when you are in an unprecedented situation, the probability of making a mistake is higher. So then you kind of tie that back to the markets that we've discussed today. And, you know, from a interest coverage perspective, which is a massive metric in all of the underwriting that we look at, that other managers look at, all types of private credit managers, that is, there we're coming from a position of strength, meaning interest coverage ratios are at very, very good levels, especially if you have a higher quality bias to your underwriting like Palmer Square does. So when you enter into these periods that are, are lower probability, but still need to be accounted for, you have room to have your debt service costs you know, um, still get met and not cause stress on the company. So I don't believe it's going to cause a big problem across the areas as you, as you sort of highlight, but you still have to handicap it. You still have to incorporate a hard landing as part of your scenario analysis and to, to not, you know, not do so, you know, would be, it would be a faux pas, but, you know, upon the, the, the back of the manager. Okay. Now it, let's, let's switch gears here. And one, one last question before wrapping up, those are glass half full that the Fed's going to be successful in curtailing inflation. And we're going to start to see interest rates normalize and they may fear they've, they've missed the opportunity to invest in private credit. What words of wisdom might you bestow on them? Oh. You know, I would say that I don't. I don't know that I would go as far as to use the word wisdom and bestow <laughs> on them. <laughs> I, uh, I think uh, you know they are an incredibly talented group, stacked with intellectual horsepower, and they are operating the best they can. And they have the same interests in mind as all of us do, right? Which is a stable mar- uh, market that's growing, that has low inflation. So yeah, I really, you know, trust in the fact that they're going to use every tool at their disposal to meet those objectives. Right. And with, with those investors though, that may think that they missed that opportunity for private credit, 
do you, do you think that's true or, or what, what might you, what might, I don't, uh, yeah. I, I don't think, think the opportunity for, for private credit has, has passed us by. In fact, I think, you know, de- de- again, depending on the manager and their approach, especially again, that underwriting is so critical, whether it's CLO debt and equity, or it's traditional private credit um, today, it's in many ways, an unbelievable opportunity given where yields are. The relative value available in private credit is tremendous. And I think that you can also say it's tremendous from an absolute value perspective as well. The key is that avoid, you know, avoidance of those risks we mentioned earlier, most notably default. But no, I, I think it's a tremendous opportunity for investors today and, and one that has a lot of diversification as, a, attributes that we discussed and, uh, and it would benefit an, a client in their portfolio for sure. Great. No, I couldn't agree more, Chris. And we, we at Centura, we believe that private credit holds a place in a client's portfolio, regardless of my market environment, uh, and that it really comes down to identifying top high quality managers such as, as Palmer Square. I want to thank you for, for coming on today, Chris. It's, it's always great to connect and always uh, great to, to uh, have these type of conversations with you. And I've, I've enjoyed our relationship over the years. So thank you. And thank you for all the insight you gave us today on private credit. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you, Chris, and congrats on all of your accomplishments. What a a great uh, discussion, and hopefully we uh, we get to do it again soon. This has been incredibly educational for the entire audience and myself, of course, so I I really appreciate that. Uh, Chris Osmond, if people are listening to this podcast and saying, you know what, this is kind of my first introduction to private credit, or I've heard about it before, but I didn't know as much as I do now, and they want to ask some questions, um, and they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach out? Yeah, of course, you can uh, check us out at uh, CenturaWealth.com, or you can contact us at 858-771-9500. Fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much again, gentlemen, for all your time today. And of course, our last thank you is for you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when they come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review, as this actually helps other people find the show. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Centura Wealth Advisory, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC-registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. 
Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results.